0: Welcome to FRP Carecast, a brand new podcast brought to you by FRP Advisory. Every episode, our experts explore the health of adult social care across the UK. Utilising our existing knowledge, we'll dive into the key themes underpinning the most pressing factors impacting care homes. Investigating staffing and restructuring and unpacking the impacts of ESG, digitisation, and innovation. Join us as we speak to leading experts in the field who are intimately involved in working with the sector on the frontline.
1: Hello everyone, thank you for joining us. Um, today we're joined by Professor Martin Green, Gary Hargreaves and Jamie Braganza. I'll pass over to Martin first just so he can properly introduce himself.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Martin Green. I'm the Chief Executive of Care England, and we're a representative body for care providers. I also chair the Care Providers Alliance, which is an alliance of representative bodies.
3: Hi, I'm Jamie Braganza. I am a partner in the Anovo Group. We, um, we operate 12 care homes across the UK, and we're also developing new care homes. Hi,
4: uh, I'm Gary Hargreaves, an appointment-taking director at FRP Advisory. I've been working with care homes in one, four or or, or another for around 25 years, and I'm also a qualified care home manager.
1: Thank you, everyone. Very much looking forward to our conversation today. I just wanted to to set the scene, really. So care homes, I don't think in my living memory, have ever been in the press as much as they have been over the last two to three years. 1.5 million people work in adult social care, and around 700 to 800,000 people work specifically in a care home residential setting environment. Today, we're going to be talking about staffing, which is a particularly hot topic, relevant topic, given the, the state of the economy at large and uh, just exiting um, coronavirus and what that means for us moving forwards. Professor Martin, where are we now and what are the challenges that care home operators have faced with
2: staffing over the coronavirus pandemic and just prior Well, I think we should acknowledge there was always a challenge around staffing even before the pandemic. And not only do we now have 105,000 vacancies, but also we have a significant turnover rate, about 34%. So I think what I would say is we had a major challenge for workforce before the pandemic. Of course, the pandemic then put much more strain on care homes and on their staff. So I think what's happening now is people are coming out of the pandemic and we're moving into a new phase of it. They're taking a step back and being able to think about what they've gone through. And many people are then starting to think about, is this the sort of sector because of the pressure that I want to be in? So I think we had a bad situation before, and I think that's probably getting worse because of the pandemic. I think that's really interesting because I was was reading something the other week and 40% of care
1: homes are actually refusing new admissions because of the, the decline in um, available people to properly and safely staff. Jamie, you obviously work with Anavo and operate care homes. How are you finding that on the ground?
3: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a major issue. We've always struggled for staff. I think it's a sector-wide problem. People are not attracted to the sector because of the stress, like Martin says, the stress associated with the job. Also, you're looking at fairly inflexible working environment. You've got long shifts and um, not being able to get any flexibility in that. So in answer to your question, I think we as a sector are just really struggling to recruit and to retain people. People are not attracted by the the wage level as well. You're constantly trying as an operator to try and attract people, but knowing that you've not really
1: got the tools to attract them. So Professor Martin said that actually this was a challenge before coronavirus. Were the challenges quite as acute or has the coronavirus pandemic and people maybe exiting the industry? What was it like before? Because I think for a lot of people, they they only see the care home sector framed by coronavirus. And Actually, I think that's a bit of a misnomer. How did you find it operating care homes pre-pandemic?
3: It was its actually very much the same. People were looking at the sector and thinking, am I going to be able to afford the standard of living that I want working in this sector, fundamentally? And because of the wage rate associated with what carers are paid, mm-hmm. there's not that incentive to come to the sector. So that's one issue. Then it's also working time, I think is a a, a massive challenge. So from the get go, pre COVID, it was always a challenge attracting people to the
1: sector. Gary, in terms of your financial restructuring background, when you've got the national minimum wage now going up by 6.6%, what were the financial challenges for care home operators pre-pandemic on the cusp of the pandemic a couple of years ago? I think he's already made the point that they were very much similar conditions to what we find now.
4: One thing that, that's not been mentioned there is, you know, prior to October, November last year, I was running probably a dozen care homes. But prior, sorry, shortly after the government's decision to force vaccinations on care home staff and make them compulsory, we then saw... Quite a significant exodus starts to happen of, of care home staff just willingly wanting to leave the care sector who were never previously thinking about leaving. The economics of it are an employed carer you would normally pay nine pound fifty an hour, three hundred and fifty-one pound a week, about eighteen thousand per annum. Agency carer, depending on where you are in the country, fifteen pounds an hour, so five hundred and fifty-five pound a week, twenty-eight thousand pounds, or just shot twenty-nine thousand pounds per annum. So you know a ten thousand differential. As a general point, the feedback I've got from the staff that have left are, you know, they've seen all of us readdress our work-life balance for the last two years, while literally they've been at the sharp end of COVID for the last two years, where in PPE all day, expectations have massively increased on them. Those expectations remain in terms of visits, compliance, pressure. And, you know, it's a little surprise, really, that the heads are turned by, you know, department stores, superstores delivery companies to name but a few who were offering three and four pound an hour than what you can get as a carer in a care home so you know and on top of that flexibility which is you know not something you can offer a huge great deal of in in a care setting because of the nature of the company that you're operating
1: i think that's that's really interesting um gary just in terms of the the vacancies. So i think in the first time in in records began the number of vacancies has actually outstripped the uh number of unemployed people when we think about care homes, I think there's a, a focus maybe on carers and people don't necessarily understand how care homes are structured. Jamie, as a as an operator, what's the kind of typical um, staffing structure of your kind of atypical care home?
3: So a typical care home, you've got a registered manager who takes responsibility, overall responsibility for the whole home. And then within that, you usually would have some sort of senior team probably nurses if it's a nursing home or senior carers and then you have carers who work below them depending on the size of the home that could be you know you would say for a a 60 bed care home you would probably have about uh, six or seven carers on a shift and then you would have all your ancillary staff as well so
1: Typically, for a sixty-bed home, you usually say you have about sixty staff who work for that. So, when when Gary's talking about um, attrition, people leaving the industry, is is that at every single grade in in your care home setting?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we see you know managers leaving because of stress. We see senior carers who don't want to take on the responsibility. You see carers leaving because of the emotional distress that they're being put through. You know, you've got to remember that these people they're doing something that's very emotionally responsible but at the same it's time got to be a passion hasn't it yeah but at the same time they've got their own lives going on yeah. right so and I think
1: when I um, with you when I went up to Scotland to see the care homes that, that we're helping you manage it was quite touching actually the resilience of people and how despite the last two years have been so tough and emotionally draining that there's still that sense of togetherness and it's a team and I think it's a testament to how um, resilient actually people are And I think that resilience is really tough when people end up using the care home sector as actually a bit of a stick, as a political stick, I guess, to to beat various parties with. Just going back to a kind of bigger picture view, I guess, Martin, what's keeping you up at night in terms of staffing and how operators have
2: coped over the last couple of years? Well I think the thing that's really a problem is the issue around how we get good uh, registered managers, how we also get those senior care workers. There is a massive problem around nursing in social care and how we get nurses and uh, well I think one of the things that um, is really important to remember is these are very complex and difficult roles and as has been said the pay doesn't reflect that. We are also competing with the NHS and the NHS has been given absolutely enormous amounts of extra money. And so staffing in the NHS is still a problem, but they're able to offer much more money and also training and development money. So I guess those are the things that are keeping me awake. The other issue is occupancy. And what we've seen is that um, because of the pandemic, occupancy levels are quite low. Because of the funding issues, you can only make it uh, work if you have high occupancy. And I think there will be a moment when the staffing crisis and the occupancy crisis probably come together. And I think we will see some people leave the market because of that.
1: And, and do you think there's a, a geographical angle to this, a north versus south? Jamie, I know you manage care homes north and south. Is this a, a similar issue in Yorkshire as it is to Hampshire?
3: <laughs> no, and yet I think the um, the southern counties are very are, are better funded. They're more flexible in terms of their funding structures for care. And so that then plays through to how you're constantly trying to manage that occupancy versus staffing
1: challenge. So looking at recruitment, I think on on one of the care homes that we're managing, we actually had to pay for an agency to fly in from Southeast Asia, some nurses. And we were paying for the flights because we were so desperate for good quality staff. Is that something, Martin, that's reasonably commonplace now?
2: Yeah, certainly. We always relied heavily on overseas recruitment. And of course, as we've left the EU, it's not so easy. But of course, there have been some changes to the Migration Advisory Committee's uh, rules. So you can now recruit from overseas. So I think there are increasingly uh, schemes that are developing where you will get people who come from overseas but have had quite a lot of training and induction in country so that they can start and make a contribution pretty much as soon as they arrive and I think you know we have got to recognise that if we're going to deal with this particularly in the short term overseas recruitment has got to be one of the things that we uh, use as our tool to make sure that we have enough staff to deliver high quality care.
1: Gary in terms of some of the, the operators you're you're seeing at the moment. What are the kind of financial pressures that staffing in particular is putting on operators?
4: I'd just like to follow on one point, actually, that um, you were talking about the solid team effort in the home that you saw in Scotland. That's absolutely critical in any care home, but it's it's almost always driven by the manager who should be driven by the provider. And there's a huge amount of inertia on both elements of your provider inertia for the same reasons. Everybody's been fed up over the last two years, they're seeing their business costs go increase almost every day. So you've got PPE costs, staff costs, uh, utilities, food, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all going up. And the um, increases in, in certainly local authority uh, fees just don't reflect the the increase in operational costs that are going up. The movement in and out of staff is just becoming a huge, huge issue for care homes across the country that I see. And you know the, the banks and the, and the providers and the agents that I talk to everybody's reporting the same problem and it's you you see staff leaving a care home to join an agency because they can see they get four, five, six pounds an hour more and in some circumstances they're coming back to the care home that they actually left.
3: Yeah just on the agency point I think there's a real need to regulate that industry at the moment because it's unregulated you have a scenario where agencies can charge whatever they want for a carer or for a nurse what are you seeing at the moment um, Jamie for, for a nurse I mean it depends on the, the location in the country but we've seen everything up from 60 70 pounds an hour I've heard stories of much higher and even for carers you're seeing 25 to 30 pounds an hour and the, the challenge that creates is then your own staff starts seeing that and they start thinking, well, actually, I can go and earn a lot more money working as an agency worker. And I don't have the same stresses that are attached to working in a, in one home, you know, the responsibility, the familiarity with the, the, the residents. So agency is a really big issue in the sector. I think that there needs to be a conversation at some point in the next year or so about how that industry is regulated,
1: because it's only heading in one direction. Martin, I saw you nodding with the agency point there. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree um, with Jamie. We've got to get this uh, agency situation clarified, and we've got to have a proper structure, because it's having such an impact. Uh, I have to say as well, it's having an impact in the NHS. But of course, the government did cap some of the levels that agencies could uh, charge in the NHS but they did not do that in social care and I do think they need to really grasp this agency issue and we do need exactly as has been said a proper approach to regulating agencies.
1: I think what we're seeing more of though is financial incentives for retention bonuses or signing on bonuses which is a obviously contractual but more more carrot than stick, I think is fair to say. What retention bonuses are you you seeing at the moment, Jamie?
3: We're offering retention bonuses to nurses because, and, uh, and is that helping? Well, I think it's um, it's something that we probably introduced in the last year. I think it is working in the right way, but it's never going to be enough. You know that the staff shortage in the sector is is huge. You were saying the stats earlier. Yeah. So we can offer some retention bonuses, which, you know, compensate for us having to incur recruitment costs in other ways anyway, but I don't think it makes enough of an impact.
1: So I think we've, we've covered where we are now. What I wanted to move on to was um, what does the future hold? So I just wanted to kind of press this what I'm about to say by £5.4 billion pounds of government funding is going to be made available over the next three years. And £500 million pounds has been made available for learning and development, attracting, upskilling staff, etc. Professor Martin, is that enough? And what do you think will be done with that money to help alleviate some of the issues that we've just discussed about staffing in the, in the care home sector?
2: Well, it's totally inadequate. You know, we're talking about uh, if you take the the money that government's put into social care, you then take 500 million out for the workforce issues. And the 500 million would equate to, you know, about 300 pounds per member of staff. So this is not going to be game changing. I think what I would like to see is the 500 million used for some really clear skills and competency frameworks, some very clear, portable qualifications and putting the whole system on a much more professionalized footing because it's a very complex job. We then need to look at how we then remunerate staff to, to. Really reflect the uh, the skills that they have and the complex job that they do, but certainly, you know, I'm so angry about the fact that the government is getting 39 billion out of the levy and immediately giving 35 billion to the NHS when the NHS has had huge amounts of inward investment over so many years. The NHS spends a thousand pounds a minute on training, so that's every minute of every day of every year they are spending a £1,000 a minute on training. Compare that with what we have available, and you will see this chasm between the two systems And it's particularly galling when every minister that's ever lived stands behind a lectern and tells us all it's all about integration. Well, they need to start with the work on how do we integrate salaries, terms and conditions and training. And when we get to that point, then we might move towards an integrated system.
1: Jamie, how do you think the the government funding and um, the £500 million, is that actually going to have a a tangible difference to you on the ground? (sighs)
3: I think it will make a small difference I think as a provider who wants to build a sustainable business you look at the staffing issue and think if I could pay staff more I would, I absolutely would, I think that the way that funding will come to us is through the fee level you know we're a 24-7 business so if I pay one member of staff £1 more for that 24-7 that's about £70,000 a year And actually, when you start to think about the number of beds in the UK and the number of staff that would need that sort of uplift, and that's just taking them from £9.50, as Gary said earlier, to £10.50. So it's not a huge leap. It will raise their standard of living, but not massively, not as much as they probably deserve for the job that they do.
1: So we're going to touch later on what what the solutions are. But what what I'm hearing is that actually... Whilst there are some positives to be taken uh, out of the coronavirus in terms of how people were, I think, uh, more innovative about the way they they delivered care. It sounds like things are still a struggle. Gary, what particular area of staffing do you think will continue to be a struggle, notwithstanding the the cost of living crisis and the rising input cost pressure on utilities, uh, etc., that operators are facing? Well, quite simply,
4: I think all of them. Registered managers, getting quality registered managers is very, very difficult on a good day they get paid something between 35 and 40,000. If you're looking at a care home that's got somewhere between 30 and 40 beds, uh, is my experience in the north and um, higher in the south. Certainly at the, at the typical care end of the spectrum, you need to be showing people that there's a career here. And that's difficult at the moment because there are other options and their eyes are being turned or heads are being turned by, you know, the supermarkets, the superstores, the delivery companies, all who are paying Three, four five pounds an hour more and for the younger generation there's a money motivation and understandably so I guess um, you know if you can get uh, benefits have flexibility a nice environment you haven't got the huge amount of pressure of dealing with people and their lives in, literally in your hands then it's not a huge decision if you're 19 20 21 I guess for someone to pay you 14 pound 50 an hour or nine pound 50 an hour Gary do you think uh, do you think the, the, the industry itself has a bit of an image problem then? I think gone are the days where people say, oh, it's a vocation. I don't see a huge amount of, you know, middle-aged men and women in care homes anymore. And I I include myself in that bracket. So my experience of trying to turn around failing care homes is you absolutely have to get the staff engaged in what you're trying to do. And more often than not, they're not, um, they're not engaged. They do a job. It's a process because the care homes that I see, unfortunately, have been deteriorated in performance for so long that all the staff are downtrodden, demotivated and, and often the culture is quite toxic and we've got to put things in place immediately, short term wins, to try and turn that culture around and it's very, very difficult when staff are not getting paid a huge amount of money but have a huge amount of responsibility.
3: Yeah, I think um, picking up on that, I think there's a real information gap there. You know, we talked earlier about the information gap between residents, relatives, and what they think a care care home is. I think there is the same information gap when it comes to staffing. I think that people look at the sector, you know, even me, when I started out in care, I didn't want to be in care. It was something I fell into. And then it took me probably a couple of years before I realised the amount of opportunity that was in the sector, I think we have a duty as operators, as regulators of government, to really try and pass that message on. And to promote, right. And to I promote the sector, think absolutely. Very
1: very anecdotally, but you you see NHS careers advertised. I don't think you see care careers advertised in quite the same way. And I think for me we've spoken quite a lot about carers and you know, the kind of the lower levels of how you operate a care home. But if, if you're a nurse And you've qualified with the NHS. How do we how do we get those people into the care homes? Because they're so crucial to delivering a high standard of care. What do you think, Martin?
2: Well, I think you're absolutely right. We should start talking about careers in care. And I think one of the problems uh, was that um, when the Department of Health and Social Care did their latest campaign, I told them I thought they should do something which identified the good careers you can have in care but they always constantly talk about the frontline role. Um, But, you know, for example, I spoke to a, a brilliant care home manager who was telling me that she started off in care mainly because she'd been told at school that she would never amount to anything. And they said to her, you've only got two choices, either care or retail. She went into care. She had a great employer. She was absolutely committed to the role. And now she's a registered manager in a very big care home. She has an excellent salary. She really enjoys her job. She's got a great team of colleagues around her. And those are the stories we need to get out there. And of course, the issue about the NHS, you know, what we should remember is the British public have had 70 years of propaganda telling them how wonderful the NHS is. And every time you turn on a television, the other night I was looking on my skybox, I had Emma Willett delivers babies, GPs behind closed doors, inside the ambulance, the surgery unit, and all these things, just on one night, are reinforcing how wonderful it is to, to work in the NHS what a great career it is, how everybody should respect you. we don't have that in care, so we shouldn't underestimate the challenge, but I think we should all be really clear we 've got to get there, and also something which um, which uh, you said, Jamie, which was so important about um making sure that everybody who's in care and is getting a good experience of it becomes the ambassador and that's why I love the idea of having um, bonuses for people who can attract other people into care. These are really powerful things and we should see that 1.2 million workforce as ambassadors for care. We should engage more with families. Do you think the impact that care can have on families, I know myself when my father was extremely ill, he was in a care home, when he was in that care home, I didn't worry because I knew they were giving him fantastic care and support. And I think those are the things everybody should be trying to engage people who've had benefits from care to tell the world about it.
4: The one thing I, I agree entirely with that as well, I think the point I made earlier was you know care homes, the culture is driven normally by the manager. My experience of failing care homes is the manager doesn't have any business training. They're they're great at care. They've been running care homes a long time, but there's so many other aspects to being engaged in the running of a care home that they are just not skilled for, in my experience, from no fault of their own. But, you know, you think about HR, IT, general, dealing with uh, leadership, strategy, finance, and, you know, 99 times out of 100, the responsible individual, the provider, the owner of the
1: business, and the care home manager there's a huge disconnect and Gary has that evolved over time was it always that same way or has the role become more complex over the years and actually that's that's created a kind of skills gap in a way because you know maybe a few decades ago it was care focused and now there's so many different elements what do you think about that I think undoubtedly it's become more complex
4: you know as a basic example care homes need to market their businesses now if you're not used to marketing, developing marketing objectives, marketing strategy, who's setting those objectives? You know, that is just one simple thing that more often than not, um, the responsible individual, the provider, the business owner doesn't have a huge amount of experience of and there's no sort of formal training given to the managers for the qualifications that they do. You know, managers have to be MVQ level five. Well, I've done that qualification. There's nothing in it about HR Finance, strategy, marketing, anything like that. It's there are qualifications available for them, but to, to be a qualified care home manager, you, know, you you do not get that training, and all of a sudden you're plucked into a, a role where you're responsible for you know 60 people sometimes, and and they're just there in the role trying to work it all out at the, at the same time. You know they're trying to manage the expectations of the CQC, the local authority, the next of kin. Um, you know, social workers, the NHS, GPs, so on and so on and so on. It's, you know, to get a good manager, as I'm sure Jamie will testify, is very, very, very difficult.
3: Yeah, I think Gary Gary is right. One thing is about the care sector is that historically it's been very fragmented. So you've had lots of smaller owner-operators. I think it's something like 85% of the sector is owner-operator-led. And there's a real resourcing issue there, right? Do I, as a owner have the competence to help a registered manager manage a care home. Not always the case, you know, a lot of people get into the sector for other motives, you know, either, you know, they inherit care homes or it's a real estate business for them. And so therefore, they're not necessarily in touch with what's happening in the care home. I think the way that we like to think about it as a slightly larger operator is that, our registered managers are the owners of their homes and we have to empower them to act like the owners of their homes. There is no one more passionate about their own care home than a registered manager. They want it to be successful. So Gary is right. I think that's a real area of opportunity within the care sector to try and empower our registered managers to take more ownership and
1: to give them the skills to do and the tools to do a better job. Listening to our conversation, is it fair to say, Martin, that things are potentially going to get worse before they get better?
2: Yeah, I think there will be some. Um, well, I think there'll be some people who leave the market. Some of them will leave the market because they've had enough. Some of them will leave the market because the business will collapse. But I think, um, one of the things we've got to do, though, is have a strategy for the future. Um, and I was listening to all the things that Gary was saying, and I absolutely agree with him. You know, this is such a complex role being a manager, but I do think we will see some people who are just worn out by what's happened during the pandemic. The challenge when you're a registered manager is that ultimately everything, it lands on your desk. And if you haven't got the staff, you've got to find ways in which you can get them because you're then non-compliant. I sit and I read endless CQC reports, and often they're telling me the same thing has happened in various different services. And they always pick out something that's gone wrong in a service. Now, if you compare that with how the airline regulator regulates... If they find that something happens, like a 747 falls out of the sky, they do a forensic analysis, they identify what the problem was, and they cascade that learning to the entire sector. And that is a validatory approach and one that, that enables the sector to improve quality. None of that happens in our current regulatory regime. So one of the things I want to see when we reform social care is a different approach to regulation that supports people to deliver their best rather than criticizes them for the things they don't
1: do. I think that's really interesting actually. You've mentioned the CQC. Gary, what's been your what's the relationship been like between the regulator and care home operators over the last couple of years and I guess how does that relationship need to evolve in the future? My experience is
4: there's a huge disconnect between the local authority and the CQC in terms of their objectives. Uh, and their desires for a care home operator. The CQC want certain things doing do it, the local authority want it done a different way. More often than not, is my experience. The CQC's moved in July 2021 to what they call a direct monitoring approach. This is effectively them, instead of going out on their inspections, collecting more detail from various sources, including the, the new recent capacity tracker. This is just effectively them monitoring more information and inspecting less. And the the catchphrase is less inspections, more monitoring. And, you know, from this, instead of physical, actual people going to look at care homes and appreciating the pressure that they're under and understanding, you know, the pressures that are on care homes generally and the staff, they're now sort of sitting back objectively looking at spreadsheets and then deciding if a care home should be inspected or not. Care homes and the, sorry, the local authorities and the CQC want care homes to demonstrate that they are implementing best practice and lessons learned but what they're not doing the local authorities in particular they're not telling care homes they're not sharing best practice with them that they see elsewhere and that's you know a massive shortfall in the process and it's a massive massive failing of the sector.
3: I do understand the move towards more monitoring because the CQC inspection was always just one day you know and a service can have a bad day and then, and then they're sort of tarnished with that for the rest of uh for, for a, years for potentially a, for years yeah exactly in the current environment but i do think that a the point about shared learning is so so important and secondly i think by moving to this monitoring platform they've removed the incentive about pushing the service from good to outstanding and that's a really really important incentive for staff because they want to feel like that aspirational. Yeah, they've got that aspiration, and I think the regulator really needs to. Um, I think they've started doing some work on it in the last couple of weeks, but or I've seen some stuff around this. But in the next six months to a year, they really need to re-engage staff with that that
1: aspiration. I think that's a a really interesting point, and and how we how we now think about where we were what the future holds, which I think we've we've captured on a number of different strands, actually. I think it's very easy to be negative, and I think that negativity is is contagious. And when I think about what the solutions are to a lot of these issues, there's not a silver bullet, obviously. There's very, very rarely any silver bullets, but there's a lot of different outside and internal pressures on care home operators at the moment. But Professor Martin, what what do you think are the the key solutions then when we consider that in the round?
2: Well, I think actually we've heard some great um, solutions coming from both Jamie and Gary. What they are about, first of all, focusing absolutely rigorously on what needs to happen in your own care service. So never mind what the regulator says about it. You need to have a really clear understanding yourself about where the pinch points are, where the performance needs to improve. Then you've got to engage your staff to have a very clear vision, which you share, which is about how they move from where they are to where they need to be. I think on the staffing side, we need to start thinking about for example, being more flexible in the ways in which we engage staff. So we have got to make it as easy and as rewarding as possible, both in terms of the funding, but also in terms of the experience of work. We have got to make that a place where they want to work, and that their lives can be really nicely dovetailed with their work. And I think we've got a a big a mountain to climb to do that because partly the challenges in a regulated sector we have to run to stand still to comply with regulation and that doesn't give us the headspace to stand back and think how can we develop new models how can we do this differently
3: yeah I think there's there's a big opportunity there you know I was having a conversation um, a couple of weeks ago and we started talking about what a typical carer looked like and we said you know you have someone who left work or a career previously because of childcare. Our typical worker is female, she is middle-aged, and she is looking for um, a way back into work. We then offer her a job which is a 12-hour shift where you get minimal breaks and is emotionally very stressful. And you think... And she's got to go back home to her own family, family, of course. And deal with all of that. And you think... Are we as providers um, giving ourselves the best opportunity to attract people into the sector? I think that we talk a lot about person centered care and we talk about how we have to approach residents and think of them as individuals and not cast this sort of single brush across all, all our residents. We have to do the same with the staff, we have to look at them as individuals and say, how can we operate and make sure that they have the flexibility that they need in their work, that they get paid, you know, equitable to what they're, what they're actually doing? How do we give them, like Gary said, the skills that they need, the tools they need, the training they need to do a really, really good job? And at the end of the day,
1: what we're doing is we're looking after people's parents. And so, in some ways just saying, well, we just need more money. It is... It's not just having a blank check, is it? No. It's it's much more deep-rooted
3: than that. But as providers, we can only control what we can control. You know, I can't sit here and say, I need more money. I'll just wait for it to come because that's not going to solve my problem. It's very easy for us to all sit around and say, okay, well, this is a real problem. But actually, at the same time, a lot of people are looking at the sector and seeing it as a massive opportunity. Um, And who's looking? Is that external investors? External investors. I think people who are looking for career change, right? You know, you're fundamentally making a huge difference to people's lives and if that's on staff or resident side. So it is an attractive industry. I think as operators We really need to start thinking about what we can do to make our staff's lives easier. So one thing we're looking at at the moment is um, a four-hour shift pattern as as a solution. Because, you know, when you've got to come to work for 12 hours, 12 hours is a long time to work. And in a really heightened emotional environment... On your feet. On your feet, There's a lot of manual work there. There's a lot of trying to connect with people. And you've still got all the stuff that's going on in your own life at the same time. So I think we need to try and think innovatively about what we can do to make our our staff's lives easier and as a byproduct for them to do a better job at work. Um, and training. Training is a massive piece. I think every operator should be looking at training and saying, I should be allocating a large slice of budget. And that's not just budget. on the
1: job training, is it? That's formal qualifications and
3: Absolutely. Absolutely.
4: Robert, just to add on to that as well, I think one of the intangible, I guess, things that we try and always do is, is to engage the staff in the business because invariably when I go to a failing care provider, they're not engaged. There's a huge disconnect between the provider and the staff. Um, so we try and get the staff, engaging the business in different ways one of the ones that I always find is very beneficial is to implement what we call process champions so that is a staff member who is dedicated to be a process champion for an area of the business that could be you know diabetes management medicine management care plans or nutrition or environment or things like that Um, and the other things are feedback so you know appraisals one-to-one supervision meetings and you know, lessons learned programs. So where something has gone wrong, there is accountability for it. But lessons learned programs are in, implemented, and staff get training as to why that's happened and how it shouldn't happen again.
1: I think it's recognition in the local community as well. Yeah. It's 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 obviously nice to get a thank you from um, from your boss, from the care home manager, but actually appreciate it. I think people want to feel like they're doing a good job, and they've had a really difficult couple of years, but they're valued member of society and they do a vitally important job and I'm not always sure that that balance is struck and that's not just financially recompensed but it's having that appreciation that as Martin said earlier today that you know you're on the same level as a paramedic nurse police officer firefighter that's how people will want to be viewed in society I think So that's a really fascinating conversation. I just want to say a massive thank you to our guests today. Certainly a lot for us to digest and and certainly no single answer. Thank you very much for joining us for the conversation today. Thank you very much uh, to our guests. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more, just hit subscribe. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us next time and make FRP Carecast your destination for a fresh perspective and knowledgeable insight.